And Father, we thank you in this hour for the privilege of looking into your word and of seeing light for where you give your light, your light expands in us and creates in us new light. In your light, we see light, Father, and we thank you that you'll speak light into the hearts of many through this message, through all who hear it, so that we may see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, in fact, that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. May it shine into our hearts and illuminate any darkness that's still there. We ask it in his name, amen. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14 For the proof that we've become companions of the Christ is that we hold firmly the reality until the end that we had at the beginning. Now the end here means, can mean the end of our lives, but it means the end, meaning an objective is reached, until an objective is reached. And it's an unreachable objective really in this life. Paul said it this way, he said, not that I have yet attained, I press on for the mark of the prize of the upward summons of God in Christ Jesus. And that he said that I may attain the ex anastasis from the dead, the resurrection out from the dead. Not that I've attained, because we are not going to attain the goal in this life. But blessed are you when you end your life, or when the Lord comes, that you're in the midst of, or in the process of, pushing on to that goal until the end, it says. So the proof that we've become companions of the Christ, the proof that he's called us friends now, is that we hold firmly the reality. Hypostasis there means the substance of hoped for things. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, hoped for things until the end. And that means until an objective is reached that really can't be reached in this life. It can be reached in relative terms in the sense that we can have Christ formed in us in such a fullness that he's manifested in our mortal bodies. And that really is the attainment of the goal in some regard. But it's not until... He changes the bodies of our humiliation into a glorious body like his own that we will have that final attainment of the goal. But we are under responsibility to press on. Our responsibility did not end at the first evocation of faith in us upon the hearing of the gospel. It did not end when we invited Jesus into our lives or our hearts, as people like to say it. It did not, be, did not end so that we can glibly say, once saved, always saved, and then coast for the rest of our lives as if we're irresponsible to God and to the Son of God and to the Holy Spirit and to the Scriptures and to one another in Christ. And so the proof that we have become, and we are called to be companions of Christ. The proof of that is that we are holding. See, we're responsible to hold what we had at the beginning until the end. 
It's like we've been handed the ball by the quarterback. We have to tuck the ball and keep running despite the adversity. Tuck the ball. Hold it so that you don't fumble it and keep running this race. Companionship or friendship with Christ actually consists of that. Holding on to the reality of hope for things which have been revealed to us by God in the scriptures. Romans 15.4, Romans 15.13, and by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2.10-2.12. Our hope comes from God in Psalm 62.5. Christ Jesus came from God. He, of course, is God. He came from God, the Father. And Christ is our hope. Our hope comes from God. Christ Jesus is our hope. Christ Jesus comes from God. Companionship with Christ is what we call an imitative participation. I-M-I-T-A-T-I-V-E. Imitative as opposed to real. Now, don't get me confused here and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that our participation with Christ isn't real. I'm just making a distinction between imitative and real participation. Ours is an imitative participation with Christ who is really consubstantial with the Father who eternally begot him. Now, we'll fan these out. These are theological, Christological realities. We'll fan them out as we go. Ours is an imitative participation with divinity because we are partakers of the divine nature in 2 Peter 1.4 by virtue of our creaturely union with the man Christ Jesus, who is also God. His is a real participation with divinity because in him all the fullness of divinity, all the fullness of the Godhead resides bodily. Colossians 2.9. Ours, again, is an imitative. Now, I'm just saying that so you'll be familiar with the term and the adjective for now. Ours is an imitative participation with God. As Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God. We have a real participation with the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5, because there is a real solidarity of humanity in Jesus Christ. Hebrews is very much about this. It's what I called a Christological, anthropological solidarity. You'll see it in print. Practically speaking, holding on to these divinely revealed hoped-for things means that we hold fast to what we have. We have these things. We have faith, which is the substance of these hoped-for things. We have these hoped-for things already in our mind, in our spirit, in our soul, in our hearts. In Revelation 2.25, and again, we came through Revelation 2 Hebrews, in Revelation 2.25, Jesus, the Son of Man, says to the angel of the church at Thyatira, just hold on to what you have until I come. Now, until I come, Jesus, until Jesus comes, is another end. Until the end is like until he comes. 
And to the angel of the church at Philadelphia, he says, I am coming soon. Hold on tight to what you have so that no one but you receives your crown. I will make the victor a pillar in the temple of my God and he will never go out again. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. That New Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from my God is the New Jerusalem that we are to let into our minds now. Jeremiah 51.50 says that. And he says, and my new name. Let the one having an ear be attentive to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That's Revelation 3, 11 to 13. So we have a kind of a correspondence or a correlation between what we have in Hebrews 3, 6 and 3, 14 and then Revelation 2, 25 and Revelation 3, 11 to 13, and then we can correlate that with Philippians 3, 11 to 14. The reality that we had at the beginning is simply the faith that was evoked in us and in them, the readers of Hebrews, when they heard the gospel. This faith is the substance of hoped-for things. Again, we'll be emphasizing that over and over again because it's central in Hebrews 11.1. 1. The reality that they had in the beginning was the hope for eschatological salvation, which is to come about when Christ, who put away sin in his first advent or his first appearance, appears a second time. The sum total of the hope for things in Jesus Christ is that eschatological salvation in him. Christ Jesus is our hope in 1 Timothy 1.1. Christ in us is the hope of glory in Colossians 1.27. We cling to him, our hope, as he clings to us without dropping us. It would kind of be bizarre to lose the grip on that hope and then to have Jesus appear. I, think about that. If we lose the grip on that hope and then Jesus appears, we would have the experience of surprise and shame. Now, that's what 1 John 2.28 says. Because we wouldn't have been expecting him. Remember the parable where Jesus said they didn't, the servants in a certain house didn't think the master was coming, so they began to treat the other fellow servants cruelly, beating one another, competing, etc. The expectation of his appearance a second time induces us to continuous attentiveness to his word and to continuous waiting for him. <clears throat> In fact, as 1 John 3, 3 puts it, the one who has this hope purifies himself even as Jesus is pure. 
That simply means that the one with this hope is incentivized to purify him or herself from the reign of sin, as Paul calls it in Romans 6. Just as Jesus is, of course, pure from that reign of sin. Since he has died to sin and risen from the dead, where neither death nor the fear of death has any dominion over him. And we are in him. This hope in 1 John 3, 3 is simply the anticipation of being made like him when we see him. Because in 1 John 3, 3, we have something that precedes it in 1 John 3, 2. When we see him, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. In the beatific vision, that's the end, that's the goal. So this hope in 1 John 3, 3 is the anticipation of being made entirely like him in his image and likeness when we see him finally as he is. That means we, see, we will see Jesus not as we do now because now we have all the obscuring influences within us and outside of us. But when we see him then as he is, we become altogether like him altogether conformed into his image and likeness. We will only be finally conformed into his image and likeness when he comes. 1 John 2, 24 and 28, Hebrews 9, 28. Now listen carefully to this because from time to time I'll warn you about false doctrines that are circulating and tossing Christians to and fro. When he comes, every eye will see him. Revelation 1.7, confer with Zechariah 12.10. Every eye corresponds to every knee bowing to him and every tongue acknowledging him. That's the tongue in your head. That's the knee under your thigh. That's the eyes in your head. Now when people say this, he's already came because he's here in us, as if that's the final coming of Christ. And they do that now. He's already here. Don't expect him to come. He's already here because he's in us. He's here in us. Now he is here in us. But if you say that's the final coming in the second advent, you're mistaken. Not only that, people who say that as if he's not coming again in a universally perceived event, an advent, they steal away the hope of the actual glorious physical appearance of Jesus when he appears in glory and when we appear together with him in Colossians 3.4. When that happens... He will transform the bodies that we presently have, called bodies of humiliation, into bodies of glory like his. A body of glory, a solidarity of glorious body, soma doxa, like his. Don't tell me he's already here in that sense because you're telling me that I already have a body of glory. And I know one thing very well, I don't. And neither do you, and neither does anyone else yet, but Jesus.
Don't let anyone rob you of the hope of his glorious second appearance because that person will steal your crown from you. It is that very hope that will be transformed into a crown when your body is transformed and transconfigured into a body of glory. We're all going to be trans bodily. We're all going to have transition in our bodies to bodies of glory. Don't let anyone take your crown by stealing your hope. Hold on to the hope until he comes. Hold on to it until the end. When you're totally conformed into the image of God's Son, in whom God has spoken with finality in these last days. You won't attain that goal in this life, but you press on toward it. We press on toward it. Even Paul said, not that I have yet attained. Of course he hasn't attained yet to the exonastasis or to the status of a physical resurrected man, but he presses on. I want to be found pressing on when I die. I want to be found pressing on in my last breath on this life, in this life. I want to be found not having any righteousness of my own, too. Read Philippians 3, 9 and 10 before you read 11 to 14. The glory with which Jesus is crowned is a royal glory. Why? because it's the glory of a universal king in Psalm 24, 7. The honor with which he is crowned is the honor of a universal priest in Hebrews 5, 4. So there's a distinction between glory and honor here in that sense, and only in that sense. The glory is regal. The honor is priestly. The honor with which he's crowned is the honor of a universal priest in Hebrews 5, 4, whose self-offering for sin is universally efficacious. You don't have to line up for the vaccination. The vaccination was effective when Jesus said it is finished. In Hebrews 5.10, being designated by God an archpriest like Melchizedek deploys the word pros agoruo. Again, you'll see that in print. I've got too much to say to put it up on the screen today. He deploys the term prosaguruo, which means designated. Now, William Lane, whose excellent commentary is worth perusing, cites Moulton and Howard in their grammar, and he says, quote, The verb prosaguruane contains, that's P-R-O-S-A-G-O-R-E-U-E-I-N, contains the idea of a formal and solemn ascription of an honorific title. So the honor with which he's crowned is priestly, and the glory with which he's crowned is kingly. And as Lonergan said, we always find the work of Christ described as the work of peace, the peace of a universal king. From Jesus' side, the proof that we are his friends 
is that he tells us everything that the Father reveals to him. He doesn't hold back any, anything. Tells us everything. John 15, 15, from now on I call you my friends because I'm telling you everything that the Father tells me. From our side, the proof that we are his companions is that we hold on to those hoped for things. The things that the Holy Spirit reveals to us include things to come in John 16, 13, and 14. We hold on to those things until the goal is reached, that being our perfection or our full development of Christ in us, the full development of Christ in us. Paul said, I'm laboring and travailing as a woman in labor pains until Christ is fully formed in you in Galatians 4.19. That's the idea here. The end toward which we are directed is the full formation of Christ in us and our conformity to Christ. Philippians 3.10, Galatians 4.19. If the goal is reached, the companions of Christ also receive a crown. Like Jesus' crown, it's a crown of glory in 1 Peter 5.4. Some say that's only for pastors, faithful shepherds. But this crown is for any of the companions who reigned in life by one Jesus Christ in Romans 5.17. The glory is unfading glory like the glory with which Jesus is crowned. It's the crown of kings. It's a crown awarded not just to shepherd teachers who are faithful, but to all who are faithful. For there are many who are faithful who are not shepherds, and there are many shepherds who are not faithful. Not faithful to the word, not faithful to the gospel, not faithful to Jesus Christ. So imagine if you had a very dear friend. You have to be geographically apart for a protracted time. That should be familiar to most of us. But you're planning to meet at a time and a place of your mutual choosing. You correspond by letter or by email. Your letters are charged with energy and expectation. But imagine if one of you fails to believe that you'll ever meet. One of you gives up hope of meeting again because, well, it just doesn't seem like that's going to be possible given all the circumstances, all of my competing attachments and responsibilities, anxious cares and concerns. The correspondence would change then, wouldn't it? Might even cease. The one who still believes in the coming rendezvous may begin to try to encourage the other. The one friend may become unresponsive, on the other hand, sometimes even bitter and even resentful of the constant communication of his friend. Now then, imagine if providence actually does bring them together at a time and a place that is neither of them originally chose to meet. What if providence brings them together after one or both quit hoping? It would be a different kind of meeting at first, at least 
from the kind of get-together that was originally planned. It would be a different kind of meeting. Now let's say that it was a meeting planned by romantic lovers and that the two planned to meet and to marry when they met. And let's say that the unbelieving partner had settled for another prospective spouse. And I say settled because they settled for the one who's really not for them. Or say they've been seduced by a deceiver. Paul actually used this kind of narrative in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 4, where he compares himself to a father who had betrothed his daughter to one man her right man, as it were, namely Jesus Christ. But the father, Paul, worried that she, the daughter, would be beguiled by another, just as Eve was beguiled by the serpent. So Paul was concerned that the congregation at Corinth would be seduced by another different gospel, a different kind of gospel, proclaiming another Jesus that they did not, that Paul did not preach, and that they would even receive another spirit, not the Holy Spirit. Read that in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 4. It's pretty sobering. But the PT in Hebrews is equally concerned for his readers that they will fall away from their allegiance to Jesus and fail to go on to completion. Now, an objection may be lodged against the prevalent theme of completion in Hebrews. Now, I can feel it coming. I can read it in the future. Someone may say, but we are already complete in Christ. It says so in Colossians 2.10. However, I would answer that objection and reply to it by saying that Colossians 2.10 does not say that we have already come into a practical experience of completion in Christ and maturity. In fact, it actually says you have been filled up in him. Plerao. That means you have all you need in him. Who is the head over every ruler and authority. That means that as in Christ is all the fullness of divinity bodily, so we all, in a Christological anthropology, we are all together the full complement of Christ, but not yet glorified. The same truth is nucleated in Ephesians 1.23, where the church is called the Pleroma of Christ. If Paul had intended to say that his readers had already reached experiential completion, he would have said something different than what he had already said in Colossians 1.28. We proclaim Christ, admonishing every person. That means warning every person. And teaching every person that we can with the wisdom that's embodied in Christ in order to present every person we can complete. That means fully educated and developed. The word here is teleon, T-E-L-E-I-O-N, in Christ. So there's two different Greek words in Colossians 2.10 and Colossians 1.28, and the word that means completion in Hebrews is more related to teleon, than play rao. 
So you can't say we're already complete in Christ, so we don't need to continue in the word. We don't need to continue to focus on Jesus. We're once saved, always saved. That ends our responsibility. Bye-bye. No. There's a difference between being made full in Christ in principle, where we're told that we have all that we need in him. There's a difference between being full in Christ in principle and in prolepsis, and between that and being made complete in terms of spiritual development and growth. Just as there's a difference between saying, you were raised together with Christ. You were raised together with Christ, Colossians 2, 12 and 3, 1. And on the other hand, we wait for a deliverer from heaven who will change our bodies of humiliation and make or transfigure them into the form and structure of his own body of glory. Yes, we've been raised with Christ, provisionally speaking, but we have not received our resurrection body, so we have, respons we have to be responsible, be in love, be reasonable, be intelligent, be attentive. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. There's a difference between being made full in Christ in principle and prolepsis, that is in forecast of what we will be, and being actually made complete in spiritual development and growth. That's what Hebrews 5, 11 to 14 is all about. So let us go on to perfection. Encapsulates the positive expert exhortation of Hebrews. Let us go on to completion. Hebrews 6, 1. We'll have much more to say about this theme, no doubt, down the road. So our response and our responsibility does not end with the initial evocation of faith in us. That is, when the Holy Spirit first kindles faith in us upon or after the hearing of the gospel. To balk, like a pitcher balks and doesn't pitch. To balk and no longer be forthright and bold in our confession is linked to the fact that we've lost our grasp or even given up our grip on hope and fumbled it. If we relinquish our grip on hope, we are no longer companions of Christ. And by that I simply mean we're no longer expressive of his kind of forthrightness about heavenly things. Hebrews makes much of our confession for that reason. Our confession, what we say, what we believe, what we say. 2 Corinthians 4.13, and Hebrews, again, makes much of our confession. Hebrews 3.1, 4.14, When one stops or shies away from speaking boldly of the hope of the gospel, in Colossians 1.23, it sometimes is because the heart has been infected with unbelief. Now, that doesn't mean you've got to run around and shake everybody down that you see in the grocery store. And some people do have that gift for witnessing to almost everybody they see. It's a wonderful gift. I don't have it. Some have it. But this means that when the occasion presents itself, we don't speak timidly about the hope that's in us. We speak with courtesy. We speak with meekness. But we speak with candidness and forthrightness without apology or intimidation. Other times we balk at our boldness because the heart has been intimidated into silence by a Goliath-like socio-political 
ideological, educational, and propagandist media. A discerning believer can sometimes detect when a fellow believer's heart begins to be affected by unbelief. Sometimes the slightest variation in the countenance testifies of this, as Isaiah 3.9 says. The look on their faces testifies against them, said the prophet. Then a reticence to talk about the things of the kingdom of God is manifested. And even hints of disapproval of the hope for things as if they're no longer relevant or intelligent or realistic. This is what it means to be on overwatch. It doesn't mean we watch each other like hawks, but we watch each other like shepherds. It means we're on overwatch lest anyone fails to take possession of grace. When one of us starts to cave and lose hope, we can be there to encourage. If anyone fails to take possession of grace and of what 2 Thessalonians 2.16 calls good hope by grace, then bitterness begins to take root in the soul sometimes from which one becomes outspoken in bitter complaining and murmuring to the contamination rather than the edification of others. I noticed while watching TV as New Year's Eve approached in the weeks before New Year's Eve, and as it came, many were talking with great relief that 2020 was over, as if the evils of that year were over. Well, those evils remain and are increasing in 2021. 2020 began much better than 2021 did, if we go by what people consider to be a good or a bad year. 2020 was, in one sense, a terrible year. Yeah, I agree. But it's not because of a virus that infects the body. What made it a terrible year was because of hate. A virus that infects the heart. Unbelief. A virus, the result of an evil heart of unbelief. When unbelief infects the heart, Christians, air quotes on either side, either are not outspoken or they become outspoken about the lie and not the truth. Instead of putting off the lie in Ephesians 4.25. The PT wants to impress on his readers by harping on this passage in 3.7 all the way to 3.19 and then even into Hebrews 4. If you think we spent too much time on Psalm 95 or Psalm 94 in the Septuagint, think again because he gets back to it in 3.15. The PT wants to impress on his readers that it was not people who had never benefited from God's actions that perished in the desert. On the contrary, it was a people who were extraordinarily helped by him and who were the beneficiaries of constant, divinely wrought miracles. 
plagues on their slaveholders. The opening of the Red Sea and the continuous, absolutely supernatural and miraculous provisions of honey from the flinty rock, water from the rock, manna that fell from heaven in the wilderness. It's those people who fell, died, fell face first into the desert sands, short of the promised land. So let's look at Hebrews 3.15 through 19. I'll take a little jump forward. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as they did in the incident of embitterment that led to provocation. You say, I've already read that before. Yeah, and the, this time it's the PT repeating it by the Holy Spirit's instructions. But listen to the question he asks now in verse 16. For who were those who heard and became embittered? You'd say, who would hear and become embittered? They must be a people who have never known anything about God. They must be the ones that are embittered. They must be a people that were never helped by God or provided by God to by God. No. He says, were they not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And verse 17, and by whom was God provoked? For 40 years, was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would not enter into his rest, if not those who disobeyed? We see then that they weren't able to enter in because of unbelief. This is a sobering thought. Jude, the brother of James, and the self-identified slave of Jesus Christ in Jude 1.1 is even more blunt than the PT. A lot more blunt than the PT is. He wrote, quote, I'm determined to remind you, though you already know all these things, the Lord who saved a people out of Egypt once for all. Here's a people that are once saved, always saved. Saved a people out of Egypt once for all, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. I tried every other translation I could find to try to make that a little more palatable. But that's exactly what it says in Jude 1.5. The Lord doesn't seem to be impressed with slogans like once saved, always saved. In fact, the Lord is not impressed with the slogan once saved, always saved. Now, it's true. Don't get me wrong. It's true. Once we were saved, we were sanctified and perfected in Christ. That says Hebrews 10.10, 10.14. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, Ephesians 1.13, etc. But that does not mean that we can abandon faith in him, leave off trusting him in our own experience in the wilderness, once saved, always saved, people were destroyed for subsequent unbelief. God's not impressed with once saved, always saved. If you, what you mean by that is my responsibility ended the day I invited Jesus into my heart. That's the way Christians talk. Or people who say they're Christians. 
Now, that doesn't mean when it says God destroyed them in the wilderness, took them out, basically. It does not mean they died and went to hell. But it does mean that they died and not of natural causes. There's a similar warning with regard to the celebration of the Eucharist. We just had communion recently. Because people were doing so without discerning the body of Christ, some were weak, others were sick, many died. 1 Corinthians 11.30. That's not to scare you. That's just the Bible, what it says about the sacredness of the Eucharist and how to take it very solemnly and seriously or don't take it at all. The generation that considers the word of the cross to be non-essential or even foolish is a generation that perishes. And that doesn't mean goes to hell. It means that they become unrestrained and wandering around in the wilderness and affected by spirits that wander in desert places and cause bitterness in the heart and unbelief in the heart and inordinate competition and inordinate ambition and the jostling and rivalry that has now brought our nation into almost a 50-50 split with possibilities of great and horrific things happening out of that schism, out of that split, out of that terrible rift. Now, as we've said before, a generation who considers the word of the cross to be foolish is a foolish generation. They also probably consider a life of self-sacrifice to be wasted. As we've said before, once again, we have to consider that the context of Hebrews creatively oscillates between exposition and exhortation, teaching and warning. And between in the exhortation, it oscillates between the positive and the negative. God doesn't want us. Please listen to me. Please listen. God doesn't want us to make the same mistake as the majority of the desert generations who were beneficiaries of astounding salvific miracles. It was this very generation, God says, who saw my works and who always were led astray in their hearts. Seeing his works doesn't make you right or righteous. It doesn't impart virtue to you. It ought to awaken you, though. It ought to awaken me. It was those same people who disbelieved subsequently, who bitterly complained and then revolted and rebelled against God and his delegated representative, Moses. They were all the more culpable, therefore, accountable and responsible, that is, having been the beneficiaries of extraordinary divine saving interventions. Here's a principle for you. A delivered people can be the worst of all people if they lack appreciation and gratitude to their deliverer. Let us have grace, as we've seen before in our communion service in Hebrews 12, 28, is understood to mean gratitude in many translations. So as we close, I want to exhort you, especially in the light of recent events, with whom was God displeased? 
it says, was it not with those who sinned? Now, listen carefully to this, because this will give some definition. Hamartiology, the study of sin, the theology of sin in the Bible. It says, God was displeased with those who sinned. But let's jump over to Hebrews 11.6, where it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So God was displeased by sin, those who sinned, and it's impossible to please God without faith. That makes me think that the sin that he's talking about is unbelief. Therefore, if to sin is to displease God, then to disbelieve is to sin, and to sin is to disbelieve. So let's turn that into a kind of Aristotelian, an Aristotle-type syllogism. God is displeased with those who sin. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So to sin is to be without faith or to disbelieve. Who fell in the wilderness? Those who didn't believe. No, it's those who sinned. Right, those who didn't believe. Those who didn't trust God to go into the land. Those who didn't trust God to take care of the enemies. Those who didn't trust God to the point where their political leader lost, so they lost hope. God is displeased with unbelief. With whom was God angry <laughs> for 40 years? Who fell dead in the wilderness? Wasn't it those who sinned by continual unbelief? Now, unbelief in God and in Jesus, listen carefully to this. It might save you. Unbelief in God and in Jesus Christ, sometimes is expressed by excessive faith in men or in institutions, human institutions. Unbelief in God is actually demonstrated, for example, when one's ultimate confidence is in men or in human institutions, including the church or including your political party or affiliation, or your admired political leader. I'll ask you a question. Is your hope realized by recent political developments? Why? Is your hope dashed by those same developments? Why? Where is your hope? Is your hope in God? Oh, God forbid that my hope would be in God, like the psalmist said in Psalm 18.2, Septuagint 17.3. Is your hope in the flesh or the arm of the flesh? then you've put yourself under the curse of disappointment. You know why? All flesh is like grass. And I don't mean weed. I mean grass. Grass that turns to hay, that withers in the sun. 
Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, James 1.11, 1 Peter 1.24. Even if that flesh that you're trusting is organized, institutionalized, arranged as a political power or a social or ideological movement, even if the grass, in other words, takes the form of a lush and landscaped lawn, it's still grass. If a movement is evil, if it's a religious, a social, or political, or ideological movement that is evil and motivated by lies and untruth and propaganda and desire and lust for power and all the things that go into political and social movements and ideological movements, if a movement is motivated that way, it will fail. No matter how many people join it, how long it seems to last, and no matter how much money is invested in it. Proverbs 11.21 says, Be assured that the wicked will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will escape. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren, but the sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. Rabbi Gamaliel, under whose tutelage Paul learned all about the Torah, everything you can know about Torah, Paul learned it from Rabbi Gamaliel. Rabbi Gamaliel was a wise man. You know what he said when they started to persecute the Christians in Jerusalem? He said this, to the about the early Christian movement in Acts 5:38 to 39 I tell you stay away from these men and leave them alone for if this plan or this works is of men it will be overthrown but if it's of God you will not be able to overthrow them you may even be fighting against God in other words you may even be found fighting against God. The movement that began then is still rolling right now, right here. The movements of men that have been evil have come and gone. The movements of evil that are happening in our nation now only have so far to go before they dissipate and disappear. So why would you fear men? Why do you fear what man can do with you and to you? Why do you fear what a governmental party can do because the news scared you? Or the other party said that if you vote for these other guys, you're going to be apocalyptically destroyed. And you believe that? Because you have an evil heart of unbelief and are departing from the living God. That's why. Wake up! I'm not doing this just for a hobby. Any plan of men concocted apart from God will be overthrown. But if something is of God, it cannot be overthrown. Paul, playing on the same field of wisdom that Gamaliel played on, taught in 2 Timothy 3, 8, and 9 that, quote, people who oppose the truth meaning the truth that's embodied in Jesus Christ. People who are of corrupt mind, 
he said, will not get very far. It may seem like they're getting far. They won't get very far. And then he said, and their folly will become clear to everybody. Everybody will see their folly. They'll see their hypocrisy. They'll see their lies, their propaganda, their plans to dominate and tyrannize. They'll see it all. And so I'll close by saying this. The axiom is true. That if you want to see if someone is a fool, just let them keep talking. And the proverb is demonstrably true that an evil man is trapped by his own rebellious speech in Proverbs 13, 19. The fool says that the word of the cross is foolish. The wise man says, I will not glory or boast in anything but the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ, by which I have been crucified to the world and this world to me. In Jesus' name, we thank you, Father, for allowing this message to flow forth today. May it do so to the effective warning of many, the efficacious instruction of us all. And most of all, may it be motivation to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, our great King. And may it also cause us to care for and love one another and to love our enemies and to love all mankind with the love that's poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We ask these things and much more enters our mind that we can't even utter, but we trust the Holy Spirit to make intercession for us, through us, and in us with groanings that cannot be uttered. We pray things, therefore, now, Father, that we can't even utter, that we know that you will answer for the sake of our generation, for the sake of our nation, for the sake of this present generation in this whole world of nations. We're praying things about revival and renewal and awakening to Jesus Christ and his significance, his saving significance, his universal saving significance, and the universal impact of his death on the cross by which he experienced the wages of sin for everyone so that everyone could have the gift of eternal life in the context of justification, rectification, redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. Plant the hope in our hearts like a flag on a hill of the coming restoration of all things. For I ask it in Jesus Christ's name, Father. Father, my majesty in heaven, I ask it in the name of your Son, whom you have appointed heir of all things, who is the very radiance of your glory and the very substance of your essence. Amen.